Ave Maria Prisma, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Uh, now most of this is just a book report uh, stitched together from all kinds of sources, so except for any errors, I, I can't take any credit for it, and I've cut and pasted the quotes and edited them. This apostolic constitution, Munificentissimus Deus, which was promulgated on November 1st, 1950, Pope Pius XII infallibly stated the following, this is regarding Our Lady's Assumption. Pius XII, quote, By the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ, of the blessed apostles Peter and Paul, and by our own authority, we pronounce, declare, and define it to be a divinely revealed dogma that the Immaculate Mother of God, the Ever-Virgin Mary, having completed the course of her earthly life, was assumed body and soul into heavenly glory. Close quote. In the same document, the Pope made it clear that Our Lady had died before her assumption, quoting Pope Adrian I, quote, Venerable to us, O Lord, is the festivity of this day on which the Holy Mother of God suffered temporal death, but still could not be kept down by the bonds of death, who has begotten your Son, our Lord, incarnate from herself. Close quote. He also cited the Byzantine liturgy to the same effect. Quote, As he kept you a virgin in childbirth, thus he has kept your body incorrupt in the tomb, and has glorified it by his divine act of transferring it from the tomb. Close quote. And he also cited St. Modestus. Quote, as the most glorious mother of Christ, our Savior and God, and the giver of life and immortality, has been endowed with life by him. She has received an eternal incorruptibility of the body, together with him who has raised her up from the tomb, and has taken her up to himself in a way known only to him. Close quote. Now, of course, Our Lady did not die as a punishment for sin, but she died because of her ardent desire to be conformed in Christ in all things. So today on this great Feast of the Assumption, we're celebrating the reuniting of the incorrupt body of Our Lady with her soul. St. Juvenal, who was the Bishop of Jerusalem from 420 to 458, told the Byzantine Empress, St. Polcaria, quote, Although there is no account of the circumstances of her death in Holy Scripture, we know about them from the most ancient and credible tradition. Close quote. So we actually sent Our Lady's grave wrappings uh, to the Empress, and St. Polcaria then placed these grave wrappings in a church in Constantinople. In the Eastern uh, churches, there's a tradition that Our Lady died uh, at 3 p.m. on August 13th, and she rose again and was assumed into heaven on August 15th. Her death on August 13th is still commemorated in Jerusalem to this day. The three days from August 13th to the 15th parallel, in a certain way, the death and resurrection cycle of our Lord, the Holy Triduum of Good Friday, Holy Saturday, and Easter Sunday. In fact, the three days from August 13th to the 15th are a Merriam Triduum, or a three-day death and resurrection cycle. It's not accidental that the Jerusalem rite for Matins, now Matins is part of the divine office that the priests and religious say every day, it's not accidental that the Jerusalem rite for Matins on August 14th is the same as that said on Holy Saturday. So today on this great feast of Our Lady, we're going to pause and take a look at one of her miracles. We've talked about it before elsewhere. It's definitely worth uh, taking another look at this miracle. It took place only 71 years ago in August of 1945. At 2.45 a.m. on August 6, 1945, the Nola Gay, a U.S. Army Air Force B-29, took off from the island of Tinian on a flight to Hiroshima. And as we all know, the Nola Gay was carrying an atom bomb nicknamed Little Boy. 
At 8.15 a.m., from a height of 31,000 feet, the bomb was dropped, and when it reached 1,968 feet, it blew up. Now, the reason for an airburst, the reason for exploding the bomb in the air above the city was in order to maximize the range of destruction, and it worked. In one blinding flash, a city of some 400,000 people was flattened. According to figures published in 1945, some 66,000 people were killed instantly by the blast, and some 69,000 were injured to varying degrees. This count was much too low, since it was based only on the disposal of actual bodies, even though so many had been incinerated. Later surveys using body counts, missing persons, and neighborhood surveys during the first months after the bombing yielded a more reliable estimate of 130,000 dead as of November 1945. The U.S. Department of Energy states, quote, by the end of 1945, because of the lingering effects of radioactive fallout and other after effects, the Hiroshima death toll was probably over 100,000. The five-year death toll may have reached or even exceeded 200,000 as cancer and other long-term effects took hold, close quote. Ground Zero was eight blocks from the Church of Our Lady of the Assumption. There are four German Jesuits stationed at this parish. They were permitted to minister within Japan because German, Germany and Japan were allies. On the morning of August 6, 1945, Father Hubert Schiffer, S.J., had just finished Mass, went into the rectory, sat down on the breakfast table, sliced open a grapefruit, and just put a spoon into the grapefruit when there was a bright flash of light. His first thought was there was an explosion in the harbor. Then in the words of Father Schiffer, quote, Suddenly a terrific explosion filled the air with one bursting thunderstroke. An invisible force lifted me from the chair, hurled me through the air, shook me, battered me, whirled me round and round like a leaf in a gust of autumn wind, close quote. The next thing he remembered, he opened his eyes and he was laying on the ground. He looked around and there was nothing in any direction. The railroad station buildings in all directions were leveled to the ground. The only physical harm he suffered were a few pieces of glass in the back of his neck. All four Jesuits survived with very minor injuries. Later on, after the arrival of Americans, U.S. Army doctors and scientists explained to him that his body would begin to deteriorate because of the radiation. Many of the Japanese people had blisters and sores from the radiation. To the doctor's amazement, Father Schiffer's body contained no radiation burns or ill effects from the bomb. Besides the miraculous survival of the priests, their rectory miraculously survived a detonation the equivalent of 13,000 tons of TNT. It was the only surviving structure which was not made of heavily reinforced concrete. Except for this house, all other wooden structures in a circumference up to three times the distance from ground zero were destroyed. Yet this wooden house withstood the blast, but with some damage, although some, apparently some of the windows even remained intact. Dr. Stephen Reinhardt, who has served as a consultant to numerous Department of Defense offices, including the Office of Nuclear Research, Defense Nuclear Agency, Naval Sea System Command, and the Air Force Space and Missile Command, and who has studied conventional nuclear weapons development for naval and Air Force combat weapon systems for 30 years, comments on this incident. Quote, the overriding conclusion from my review of the weapon effects at Hiroshima is that this weapon was intentionally designed and deployed to kill or maim as many humans as possible in residential housing or unprotected outside over the widest possible area for the weapon's size while minimizing radiation effects from contaminated debris being thrown up in the atmosphere. One of the most flammable items on a person is their hair and clothing. Much of the clothing at this time was cotton or blended cotton, which, which would be considered highly flammable. 
I suddenly came to the realization that the intent of propagating a fireball this high was to be able to set fire to a person's clothing and all types of fabric at relatively long distance from the blast's epicenter. The air blast would be felt for miles, blowing out windows and damaging most all structures by cracking the walls, and terrorize the remaining population. Hence the description by those who survived of seeing burned bodies everywhere or charred skeletons and skin that was shredded into strips is consistent with a bombing order to hit a populated city in the center without specific regard to military objectives, which by the way is highly immoral. At kilometer one, the bulk of the temperature was in excess of 20,000 to 30,000 degrees Fahrenheit. And the blast wave would have hit its sonic velocity with pressures on, on building at one kilometer greater than 600 pounds per square inch. Buildings were demolished over a mile from ground zero. The fireball diameter was probably on the order of two to four kilometers. Depending on the actual height of detonation, the Jesuits must have had the edge of the fireball literally outside their window. Assuming they were outside the fireball, the residents should still have been, still should have been utterly destroyed at temperatures greater than 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit and air blast pressures at great, greater than 100 pounds per square inch. Unreinforced masonry or brick walls, representative of commercial construction, are destroyed at three pounds per square inch, which will also cause car damage and burst windows. At 10 PSI, Hemin will experience severe lung and heart damage, burst eardrums, and at 20 PSI, your limbs can be blown off. Your head will be blown off by 40 PSI, and no residential unreinforced commercial construction will be left standing. At 80 PSI, even reinforced concrete is heavily damaged and no human would be alive because your skull would be crushed. All the cotton clothes would be on fire at 350 Fahrenheit, probably at 275, and your lungs would be inoperative within a minute breathing air even for a few seconds at these temperatures. There is no way any human could have survived, nor should anything have been left standing at one kilometer. At 10 times the distance, about 10 to 15 kilometers, I saw the brick walls standing from an elementary school, and I think there were a few badly burned survivors. All died within 15 years of some form of cancer. Examining pictures from a panoramic view from the epicenter of the blast at Shima Hospital, looking for the Jesuits' house, one did show some kind of two-story house totally intact, at least from what I could make out, and it looked to me like the windows were in place. Also, there was a church with the walls still standing, but the roof gone a few hundred yards away. The Department of Defense never commented officially on this, and I suspect it was classified and never discussed in open literature. I think it is possible the Jesuits were asked not to say anything either at the time. There are no physical laws to explain why the Jesuits were untouched in the Hiroshima air blast. There's no other actual test data where a structure such as this was not totally destroyed at this distance by an atomic weapon. All who were within this range from the epicenter should have received enough radiation to be dead within at most a matter of minutes if nothing else happened to them. There's no known way to design a uranium-235 atomic bomb which could leave such a large discrete area intact while destroying everything around it immediately outside the fireball by shaping the plasma." Close quote. Okay, so according to the experts, the Jesuit fathers ought to be dead as they were within the most deadly one mile radius of the explosion. But why weren't they dead? Not only did they survive with at least relatively minor injuries, but they all lived well past that awful day with no radiation sickness, no loss of hearing, or no other visible long-term defects or maladies. Naturally, they were examined numerous times. Father Schiffer said he'd been examined over 200 times by scientists and healthcare personnel. Father Schiffer thought he had received protective shield from the Blessed Mother, which protected him from all radiation and ill effects, and the priest specifically stated, quote, we believe we survived because we were living the message of Fatima. 
We lived and prayed the rosary daily in that home. Close quote. We survived because we were living the message of Fatima. We lived and prayed the rosary daily in that home. Four priests and even their wooden house survived just blocks away from ground zero. Relatively minor injuries, no radiation sickness, no loss of hearing, no long-term ill effects or problems. We survived because we were living the message of Fatima. We lived and prayed the rosary daily in that home. That is an important message. That's a critical message for each and every one of us here to take to heart. As a society, we're on the very brink of the abyss. I've talked about these things before, but it bears repeating. Just ponder the shocking reality that the last prophecy that our Lord made before he died has finally come true. The last prophecy our Lord made before he died has finally come true. It's a prophecy he makes at the eighth station of the cross. He turns to the women of Jerusalem and says, Weep not over me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days will come when they will say, Blessed are the barren, the wombs that are not born, and the breasts that are not given suck. For the first time in history, first time in the history of the world on a global scale, women want to be barren. Women want to be sterile. Women want to be child-free. Something that used to only be true about women of the night, blessed are the barren, something that only used to be true about women of the night is no longer the exception, but it's the rule. We are not a virtuous people. This year marks the 51st year of that satanic decision of the U.S. Supreme Court, Griswold versus Connecticut, the decision which made so many barren wombs possible, the decision which decriminalized so-called birth control, contraception, a crime against the law of nature and the law of God. Contraception. It turns a sacramental act, an act by which married couples are meant to grow in grace into a terrible perversion, an absolute lie with body language, and drags so many souls down into hell. And as anyone who has bothered to read the fine print in the package inserts or in the physician's death reference knows, many so-called contraceptions, contraceptives are really abortifacients. They actually work by causing early-term chemical abortions. For example, the pill, Norplan, the IUD, Deeper Povera, all cause early-term abortions by making the womb a hostile environment so a little baby has no place to attach himself to grow. In fact, according to the calculations of Pharmacists for Life, the annual infant homicide rate due to so-called contraceptives in this country alone in one year ranges from a low estimate of about 8 million babies to the high estimate of about 13 million babies. 8 to 13 million chemically aborted babies in one year alone. When's the last time you heard a bishop preach against contraceptive? When's the last time you heard a bishop warn his flock that the use of contraception, a direct sterilization, is intrinsically evil? gravely sinful and place the eternal salvation of their souls in jeopardy. When is the last time you heard that? Even though it's obvious 
that these sins are widespread in Catholic circles. And even though the government's now holding a knife to our throat over this very issue. If there's one thing we've all heard from the pulpits and the chantries over these last 50 years of this living hell, it is silence. Silence from the bishops. Silence from the priests. 50 years of this living hell and all we get is silence. And the first result of this silence is this bloodbath. This bloodbath. The oceans of blood. The oceans of blood that are clotted with the shredded limbs and mangled bodies of the roughly 59 million babies that have been cut down by surgical abortion in the United States. Roto-rooted and salt-cured out of our carefully laid priorities. The torn bodies of our 59 million little brothers and sisters sacrificed to lust on the federally protected altars of Satan. Their little torn bodies floating and bobbing in the bloody tides of this culture of death. And that's not the half of it. As of 1993, that's over 20 years ago. As of 1993, when we penciled in the abortions caused by the pill and other abortifacient drugs, using the last statistics available from the Pharmacists for Life, there were somewhere between 193 million to 286 million chemical, mechanical, and surgical abortions in these United States as of 1993. As of 1993, there were somewhere between 193 million and 286 million chemical, mechanical, and surgical abortions in the United States. And that's the first result of this silence from the bishops, from the priests, from the pulpits. And the second result of all this silence is spiritual. And who but the good Lord knows how many souls have been lost as a result of this immoral free-for-all following the wake of the societal acceptance of contraception. How many souls have been lost, eternally lost? This silence is just another form of spiritual contraception or spiritual abortion on the part of far, far too many bishops and priests. How many married couples would have never gotten in these kind of troubles had their priests and bishops been vigilant, preached and taught and defended these truths? How many young people would have lived chaste lives? How many physicians would actually follow the teaching of the church? How many pharmacists would refuse to distribute these immoral drugs and devices? There's about 67,000 pharmacies in these United States. You know how many follow the teaching of the church? Eight. I guess all the pharmacists can go to hell. Is that, is that the message from the church? Eight. How many souls would have been saved? Well, we didn't get the truth. We got silence. How many souls have been lost, eternally lost? The souls of married people, the souls of young people, the souls of physicians, the souls of pharmacists. How many souls have been lost because of this silence, this cowardly silence? And how many souls of bishops and priests have been eternally lost? Apocalypse, chapter 21, verses 5, 7, and 8, quote, And he who sat upon the throne said, Write this. For these words are trustworthy and true. 
He who conquers shall have his heritage, and I'll be his God, and he shall be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the polluted, as for murderers, fornicators, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their lot shall be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is a second death. Close quote, the inspired, inerrant word of God. As for the cowardly, the faithless, the polluted, as for fornicators, their lot shall be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is a second death. And where are the bitter tears? I'm not talking about the bitter tears of the lady. Anybody that spends any time at confessionals heard those. Where are the bitter tears and repentance and public correction, public apologies for all this silence? And the perversion, the blatant perversion visible at every level of our society, from the media to grade schools to the rectories to our military, the blatant perversion is literally unspeakable. Blatant perversion. But if we pause and stand back, what scriptural precedent does that bring to mind? Story of Lot. Story of Lot. And how did that story end? Sodom and Gomorrah perished in fire that fell from heaven. When the fire rained down on Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot and his family were saved by the angels. Does anyone here really think that we as a people deserve a better treatment than what they got? But there is a message of hope, of real hope. When the fire rained down Hiroshima, the Jesuits in their house were saved by Our Lady. If you're not praying your rosary and living the message of Fatima, Today might be a really good time to start. Start praying your rosary every day and live the message of Fatima.